Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO and I have a confession to make. I am incredibly frustrated by the way that higher education does not prioritize recruiting non-traditional or post-traditional students. I am really excited to be bringing on the show today, Seth O'Dell, who's going to be talking to us about the importance and the ways we can recruit post-traditional students. Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the podcast designed for higher education marketers. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt, and I am so excited to have this opportunity to share insights and inspiration. With Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, I'm designing a different kind of podcasting experience. With each episode, I'll be bringing in a guest for a deep dive into the challenges and joys we all face in higher education marketing. After each episode, you can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. I would love to see this become like a book club, but for a podcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at at JamieHuntIMC. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C for more opportunities to connect. So I'm super excited today to be talking to Seth O'Dell, who is the CEO of Canahoma Agency. Welcome to the show, Seth. Hey, thanks for having me, Jamie. Really uh, looking forward to the conversation. Appreciate the chance to come on. I have been following your de- the development of Canahoma over the past uh, about a year, right? And it has been really exciting to see. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, happy to. So uh, I've been in the education space for over 15 years. I worked at UCLA, uh, Southern New Hampshire University, so I went from traditional to kind of non-traditional, post-traditional. And then I was uh, a GM at Helix Education and then vice chancellor at Nash University System. But last uh, couple years, uh, November, so next month is two years, I launched Canahoma, uh, which is a new education marketing agency. Uh, we're a full-service shop. Uh, primarily serving institutions that that kind of cross over between traditional and non-traditional, so campus students and adult and online. And started with just myself in a bedroom during COVID, uh, and last week we onboarded our 20th full-time employee, which has been wild. And so we've been growing like crazy and just been very um, grateful for the response. A lot of institutions are looking for you know performance marketing support, so we provide um, paid media management. We have six full-time media buyers buying ads, uh, five full-time creatives, uh, web services team, and so kind of you know just doing our best to partner with institutions that are primarily looking to drive enrollment. That's really kind of our sweet spot. Is more on like the performance driving side, uh, and uh, just trying to keep up with everything that's been coming in. It's been a really crazy and blessed last couple of years. To say that the is least. awesome. In two years to grow to twenty employees, that is amazing. Is that that feels atypical? Uh, yeah, it, it is definitely um, not what I expected. <laughs> Even when I started, I wasn't sure if it was going to be just me um, doing a consulting. And uh, there was, I thought launching during COVID would have been not ideal timing. But I think in hindsight, I sort of launched like right when everyone was moving from defense to offense and starting to realize that, okay, like we need to figure out how to address the enrollment challenges that we might have experienced um, during the pandemic. And so um, it has definitely not been growth we've pursued. You know, we've only ever done three RFPs oh. in two years. We, we, we don't reply. It's all been folks texting and calling and reaching out. And so 
Uh, you know, we'll see if that dries up and I have to hit the conference circuit next year maybe, but so far uh, it's more been like a hold on to the wheel and uh, feels like we're going downhill uh, and just trying to keep up and keep pace with everything. That is tremendous. And you mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago that you had something like 300 applicants for one of your roles. That is amazing. Yeah, we're actually averaging over 500. We had 800 for our last job opening. Um, we're, so we're a fully remote company, 100% uh, remote, uh, and have just been really trying, you know, uh, one, I'm a real like big pro-labor person, personally grew up in a very like, you know, liberal labor-friendly family, uh, but also like, I think it's time for employers to kind of see where the market's going. So we're 100% remote, we're 100% asynchronous, so staff can set their own hours and work whenever they want. Uh, and we offer, we cover 100% of all benefits, so health, uh, dental vision for employees, spouses, dependents, uh, large match on a 401k. We were one of the first companies in California to start paying student loans on behalf of our employees uh, prior to um, Biden's announcement. Um, so we were actually, I think, like the third in San Diego uh, County to offer that. And so uh, just trying to, to be a future-focused employer and um, gratefully, or thankfully rather, that's that's been really well received. And so folks seem eager. And I thought no one would want to come join like a a new company that doesn't totally know where it's going or what it's doing. And and I've like learned that's actually the opposite. People are like weirdly attracted to the kind of momentum and chaos. Um, I think uh, trying to escape some monotony maybe on their side. And so uh, I've been very grateful at the response. I'm so happy for you. It's always great to see wonderful people have wonderful success. And I think it speaks to your character and the kind of company that you're trying to run, that you have had this this wonderful, absolutely amazing growth in such a short period of time. Thanks so much, I appreciate awesome. that. So one of the things that you just mentioned is that you're really focused on, well, maybe focus isn't the right word, but you're really working with folks on um, recruiting what you have referred to in the past as post-traditional students. How do you define post-traditional? Traditionally, folks have called it non-traditional, and uh, we looked at the market uh, sort of as traditional high school-age students that progress to college. You're 18 to 22-year-olds living on campus. Uh, and when I first came up in the industry, so I joined Southern New Hampshire in 2011, they're now the largest nonprofit in the country. Uh, but at the time, they only had 7,000 students. And so even then, we talked more about non-traditional, which meant typically folks that it, it were over the age of 24, 25, um, they were studying part-time and or working part-time, um, juggling work and family. And so uh, they had alternative kind of obstacles. And that is very much a significant part of the market. It's much larger than people realize. I have kind of just sort of just over time evolved, and I'm sure I picked it up from somebody smarter than me, uh, to talking more about post-traditional, uh, because I don't think the lines of traditional and non-traditional are as clear anymore. There's actually a great article just at Inside Higher Ed this week about how much younger online students mm. are getting. Uh, we even saw that in 2014 and 15. Uh, the average age of an adult online learner used to be like the mid-30s, and then it's been creeping down towards 30, and it's gonna pretty quickly, I think next year, that the average will be below. And so we're getting to a place now where even 18 to 22 year olds are choosing to study at an online institution. And so to me, those are post-traditional students, even though they fit within the age demographic of a traditional student, they're looking for an alternative educational offering that is not a traditional residential experience. And so post-traditional to me is, um, it represents both that that non-traditional definition a lot of us have thought about adult learners and embraces the reality that even younger students these days are looking for an alternative path uh, to completing their degree. I thought that Inside Higher Ed article was fascinating. Like the idea that students are looking for a different type of experience than that traditional experience. And I'm curious 
about whether you think that the pandemic has accelerated that because so many students had a fully online high school experience or a fully online freshman and sophomore year, things like that. Do you think that has played a role? Absolutely. I think so. It's played a significant role for a few reasons. One, people's expectations, I think, have changed. They've, they've gone online and in some cases have enjoyed it or at least found the trade-offs to be acceptable. Um, and so that's been effective for them. Uh, and I think that's definitely been like a piece that it's been forced on. I think we're also seeing that the folks that were like already leaders have pushed even further forward. So uh, organizations like Southern New Hampshire or New Mexico State, they're actually offering like fully online programs for athletes. Mm. Uh, and, you know, athletes traditionally had some of the lowest completion rates at institutions. Um, you know, they're traveling significantly, especially if you're D1. Uh, and now the idea that you can not just have one or two online classes, but you could potentially live on campus and study 100% online. That's happening today, uh, even though it's not being talked about. And to me, that's the reality of like, where and how does the modality meet or exceed the needs of the student? Uh, and it's really like nuanced. Um, I do think there's students that have gotten lost in the shuffle in the pandemic. We saw 20% decline year over year in students progressing to community colleges. Um, you know, I think a lot of them have ended up in the gig economy. They may still be living at home with their parents. And so they're not looking to now suddenly switch to a residential experience after a gap year or two. Um, and so all of these factors combined, I think, is just a real appetite. Um, and I think it reflects that there's a generational shift that has happened within our student population, even if it hasn't happened at the administration <laughs> level. Uh, when I left UCLA in 2011, uh, I got laughed out of UCLA for leaving to go to a school no one had ever heard of in New Hampshire uh, because I wanted to work in online education because it was sort of looked down upon. And even when I first started at Southern New Hampshire, you know, multiple people talked to me about like, you're working in online education, what's that like? Uh, I feel like that conversation is gone. And perhaps the pandemic did play a role there because uh, when all of the Ivy League schools go 100% online and the research backs up that the outcomes related to online education can, can meet or exceed that of a traditional campus, suddenly a lot of those like early arguments sort of start to fade away. Um, and even if the administration is largely the same as it has been five or 10 years ago, the student population is totally turned over. I think it's a really significant shift. And I think, uh, I think it's only heading in one direction. Uh, pretty clearly, at least for, for the folks that are watching. Yeah, it. yeah. When I started my master's degree, it's a fully online program in 2009. And I remember, sorry, mom, I know you're listening, but I remember my mom <laughs> being sort of skeptical, like, oh, it's online. Like, it wasn't the same. But it was an incredibly rigorous program. I mean, the amount of papers and discussion groups and conversations that I had to have, it was no, it was a different modality, but it was just as rigorous. Um, but it let me maintain having a full-time job. And, and I think that makes such a big difference for, from an equity and uh, accessibility perspective. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that it's really interesting that, that these days, at the time that you did that, it might've been a reality. I got my master's online as well. Um, you know, sometimes people hear about the institution, the institution's known for being more online. And so um, people might equate the degree to the modality. But that's the other thing that the pandemic sort of thrown out the window is like these days you can get a degree from some pretty traditionally what we describe as prestigious institutions from a ranking perspective that are all online, but doesn't say it anywhere on the, on the diploma. It doesn't say it on your LinkedIn. There's no way for anybody to really know. Uh, and so there's sort of this ambiguity now that um, you really can't read the modality out of a degree anymore. And so uh, it's really the quality of the overall institutions like brand equity and market. Um, because I had the same experience, and I'm just so curious if I was getting my master's today, uh, if I'd have had those conversations like I did maybe seven or eight years ago when I first started the program. Hey, all. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. 
I want to take a moment to thank my friends at MindPower who are making season two of this Involify podcast possible. MindPower is a full-service marketing and branding firm celebrating nearly 30 years of needle-moving, thought-provoking, research-fueled creative and strategy. MindPower is woman-founded and owned, WBENC certified, nationally recognized, and serves the social sector, higher education, healthcare, nonprofits, and more. The MindPower team is made up of strategists, storytellers, and experienced creators. From market research to brand campaigns to recruitment to fundraising, the agency exists to empower clients, amplify brands, and help institutions find a strategic way forward. You can learn more about their work in the world by heading on over to MindPower Inc. That's M-I-N-D-P-O-W-E-R-I-N-C.com. And be sure to tell the crew that Jamie sent you their way. I felt really defensive about it. Like working in higher ed at the time and being like, I mean, not wanting people to know it was online, but obviously they had to know because it was West Virginia University and I was not living in West Virginia at the time. Um, (laughs) But it was... It's the shift is really fascinating. Last week, I was um, visiting with some international students who were talking about they are actually the student I was talking to is taking a fully online course load, right? But living on campus and having that experience, but she just felt like the modality suited her learning style better. Totally. And I think that's that's super justified. And for a lot of folks, you know, one of the small nuances of online is, you know, you lose the back row uh, when you leverage uh, message board structure uh, with mandatory engagements. Uh, the idea of, you know, hiding out in class doesn't really work or the student that's really vocal sort of hogging the teacher's time. A lot of things fade away. And so it's certainly not for everybody. Um, but I will say I mean, my online master's was significantly harder. Uh, than my on-campus undergraduate experience. It should be at, at, as a graduate level educational experience, but it still was, even though it was online and not campus. And I, uh, again, I just think that uh, our our populations that we are attracting and we're reaching this is like not even a conversation for them anymore. And yet it's so present, still a conversation for many of us at the institutional level. And I think that's just a sign of um, like anytime, you know, in leadership, how do you keep up with a shifting market? And I think a lot of students are doing their best um, I don't want to say everybody's caught on their heels. There's been a lot of leaders in this space, but certainly uh, it's evolving, I think, faster on kind of the front lines of the student expectation, maybe than it is internally for a lot of us at the organizations that yeah. we serve. I'm, I'm really excited to be at an institution now that has, I, I want to say they have about 6,000 online students and it's largely uh, bachelor's degrees. So I had made an assumption that it was going to be master's degrees um, before I dug into it a little bit. And we have a lot of students doing fully online bachelor's degrees. Um, and we have a large military population. So like 25% of our students are military affiliated. And it just gives them the opportunity to have that asynchronous experience. Maybe you're stationed somewhere for a year. You can still take your classes and, and do them at what would be four in the morning here, but you're you're doing them at your normal time um, abroad. Absolutely, I mean, you're, the organization you're at is just a, such an interesting example too, given the breadth of the uh, overall traditional student population, which I think is over mm-hmm. 20,000. And so you're talking about an organization of significant scale that is also invested in online and non-traditional students. Uh, and, and, you know, and not knowing the legacy of it, I'm sure it's driven by the desire to serve those who serve uh, because they've always had unique needs in that population, but it's just so, 
uh, exciting to see the larger organizations that would, in, you'd think theoretically have like more entrenched bureaucracy and move slower, actually move like quite fast and be a leader in the space. Uh, there's a lot, I think, that, uh, that other folks, especially maybe smaller privates, could take as lessons from that. If uh, these large organizations can move so quickly and be so effective, definitely shows there's, there's still a lot of room for folks to step in Absolutely. and serve. So as we have the conversation in higher education about the enrollment cliff, I think about this post-traditional population as being an audience that we could be attracting to help with enrollment challenges. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, so that's definitely the first place um, that a lot of folks uh, think from a revenue perspective. And, and uh, when applied correctly, it is absolutely true. The demographic cliff on the private side is coming. Uh, we're going to see less students graduating high school every year for you know, more or less the next 10 years. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot of smaller privates under significant enrollment pressure. 20% of all institutions in the state of Vermont have closed or merged wow. in the past five years, uh, which is unbelievable. 20% of the entire state's uh, institutions have just wow. gone away. Um, and they're the front lines statistically for a few reasons on why. Uh, the highest colleges per capita, uh, highest price tuition for almost any state. So, But they're the canary in the coal mine. They're not the, the last. And so... Uh, folks have looked to the non-traditional population uh, to diversify from a revenue perspective, and I definitely think that that, generally speaking, makes sense. You know, just at the adult undergraduate level, uh, there's over 40 million adults in the U.S. today that have some form of credit and no credential, meaning that they essentially started college at some point and they didn't finish. Uh, it doesn't mean that they all want to go back and finish, but a significant portion of them do, and you know, the data still shows that they they get a, a large economic lift if they do complete that degree. Uh, and so they need kind of a low-cost, flexible, transfer-friendly solution. That said, the market has really shifted, and um, you know, as demand is declining, supply online is is way up. You know, 2,500 of the 4,000 colleges in this country that offer financial aid all have online programs, uh, and so there's over 850 online MBAs. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing a real saturation. It's like nobody needs another online MBA. Different degrees or even flavors of that with concentration models. There's a, like, a, a world of strategies folks have used to just absolutely be successful in this space. But the playbook is evolving pretty quickly. And so even when I started at Southern New Hampshire, um, the marketing was very different back then. It was almost like all you had to do was open up the door and students walked in because there was such a need. Uh, and now um, the market has flipped and students have a tremendous amount of options. And, and I would argue too many options to actually mm. research. Like there's really no effective way to find the right online institution anymore. Um, you can't go online and evaluate, you know, every MS in, in data analytics. Uh, you know, there's literally hundreds. And so how do students evaluate? And so that it's gotten complicated. Uh, but as a marketer, I actually love that because to me it means that the challenge we have is a marketing challenge because there is market demand. There's just too much supply. Uh, but that's definitely the shift. A lot of folks see that shift in campus. Um, I always caution people, don't look at it just to drive alternative revenue because it's going to cost mm -hmm. money in the short term. Uh, it costs a lot more to acquire students at the non-traditional side. But uh, it is a very worthy investment. And I do think the idea of institutions reflecting on who they are and how that may shift is important and saying, like, what's our population today? I mean, we even have clients now at Canahoma where we have this conversation about, like, you know, are you aware that you are more than 50% non-traditional? Like when we look at your revenue and we look at your student population, you are majority non-traditional. And yet when you go to your website or review your emails or walk on campus or talk to people even just internally, um, you don't sense or feel that uh, because the students are online. And so I think a lot of institutions are going through that culturally of um, even where they're garnering success, figuring out how does that shape or change who they are. And I think the best folks are the ones who are saying, um, this is directionally where we want to go. We're going to lean into this. Um, and, uh, and with it, hopefully capture some demand and then also allow maybe our organization to 
I don't enter a new chapter. Yeah, totally does. I think think listening to what students want is a really important piece of that because if you're listening to students and they say they want a hybrid experience or they want a fully online experience and you're not providing that, you're missing gonna miss out. I mean, you're it's it's do or die at that point. Absolutely. And I think, and that's where I think, listen, we're talking about listening students, they're looking for a lot of other alternatives too. So, you know, we've obviously seen a big decoupling of the degree and growth in boot camps and, and you know, non-credentialed offerings. Right now, those have been held off because financial aid is by and large only allowed to be applied to traditional degrees. There are some pilot programs where they're allowing it to be applied to boot camps. Uh, if tomorrow they woke up and said, you can apply federal aid to non-degrees, I, I candidly think a good chunk of our industry mm-hmm. would collapse. Uh, and it'd be a very, very big change because the market is not looking to spend two to four years on a degree. They're looking for something more expedited, um, which is also why we're seeing folks move straight into the workforce. We're seeing a growth in organizations, you know, even down like Starbucks uh, that are offering, you know, fully paid degrees at ASU if you work with them. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversations on Reddit right now, people saying, should I go to college or should I go mm. to work? And if I can go to work and get someone else to pay for the degree, uh, does that put me in a better place right now? And so it's a a lot of shifts in what students are looking for, um, and, and and again, a lot of price pressure too. We, you know, the 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 days of the '80s and '90s take out hundred million dollar loans and build up big buildings and jack up tuition to cover it. Like that's come home to roost, and so um, I don't see the same building and land grab taking place like it did. You know, even just 15 years ago, for folks that were trying to build the newest dorms and have the best, you know, sushi <laughs> chefs in the cafeterias to recruit, that still exists uh, certainly in some places. But I think. Uh, it's a, it's just not the future for a lot of No us. more lazy rivers. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so how is marketing to a post-traditional audience different than marketing to say those high school students are looking for that traditional college experience? Ah, so great question. So there's, there's so many ways. So I'm going to see how few I can give you and keep it concise. You know, the first I'd say is um, high school students are working on a fixed timeline while adult students are working on a variable timeline. Meaning that, you know, high school students are are working and it's important, they're working in unison. So they're working in unison on a fixed timeline while adults are are working uniquely on their own path in a variable. High school students move through a cycle. They get recruited in the cycle and they make decisions in the cycle. Uh, that does change a little bit. There's students who do early admission. There's students who uh, decide to wait till the summer after they graduate and they end up at a community college or you know open access private institution or a public institution close by with, with that has room. But generally speaking, there is a, a cycle and a path to this. And there is sort of a cultural corralling that's taking place, at least within most high schools. And so those students are sort of, you have a different level of their attention, uh, whether it's college fairs or still doing direct mail or email. Um, and so even though it's difficult to reach them in some areas like paid social, uh, where there's age restrictions, it's quite easy to reach them in others, at least historically when they were all taking tests and you could buy the list from the college board, which is harder than ever with more and more test optional institutions. Uh, you know, on the adult side, uh, you're competing with uh, with inertia. Mm. And so, you know, especially especially at the adult undergraduate level with credit, which is 40 million, but also at the adult graduate, um, these are folks who have competing priorities. You know, the average adult today sees between 4,000 and 10,000 ads a day. Uh, and I couldn't tell you a single one I saw yesterday, <laughs> right? right? Um, and, and so how do you get in front of someone like that? 
and introduce your offering at the exact right time? You know, the first answer is like, you know, don't create demand, capture it, but which means let's go to paid search. Uh, but the problem is everybody's on paid search and it's gonna cost you 30 bucks to buy a click on the term online MBA. Uh, so no one's making any money. People are spending $50,000 to recruit a student into a $20,000 program, losing their shirts and there's another institution behind them willing to bid it up. Uh, and so like there's a real weirdness taking place on like paid search as a, as a bidding platform. Um, that for those that can make it work, it works, um, but it's very expensive and it's complicated and takes a lot of expertise to do. Um, and then if you're not going to do that, you kind of got to interrupt people. And so, you know, paid social has been a strong player in doing that. Um, you can target folks at the adult level that you can't in high school. You really can't target 16 to 18 year olds almost at all in any meaningful way. Uh, but above 18, you can. And so the recruitment's different, uh, but the offer has to be different too. What they're looking for is different. If I had to over, like, oversimplify and be a reductionist, I would say that traditional students want experience uh, where adult students want mm. outcome. Uh, and so those are very different things. And especially on the adult side, um, you know, one of those things is, is risk aversion and the likelihood that they'll succeed, uh, which is, you know, you're not in high school more or less within reason. If you're recruiting a high school student and they choose to not go to your institution, they probably chose to go somewhere else. Uh, for an adult student, if you're recruiting them and they chose not to go to your institution, they probably just didn't go back mm. to school. Uh, and and so you're really up against some different motivations and obstacles in that sense. And so um, it's a little more complicated. Uh, it's a little bit more nuanced. And it's, it's you know, unfortunately, even more of a numbers game um, that you just have to kind of reach as many folks as you possibly can and have strong outreach strategies. And so the business has been built heavily on, you know, email and call center models and high outreach and high customer service. Um, that's historically been the path, um, coupled with a with a big paid media budget to try to figure out how to get in front of people and interrupt them, and at the right time make a connection, uh, which is not easy, but but folks have found a way to do. When you were tweeting about this um, a few weeks ago, you wrote about the four P's of recruiting post traditional students. Can you share with the listeners what those are and why they're important? Absolutely. So uh, like all good things I say, they come from people smarter <laughs> than me. So this was taught to me by a guy named Steve Hodowns, who is the CEO of Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education, which is the division I work for. Uh, and he was talking to me about recruiting adult students because really this conversation, I was coming from UCLA, one of, you know, at the time, one of now the most popular university in the country uh, from an application perspective. No shortage of interest. Uh, you come to a smaller school uh, in New England uh, that folks haven't heard of before, uh, and it's a little bit of a different conversation. And so he gave me four things, and I translated them into the four Ps because I like alliteration, <laughs> and I came up as a copywriter, and it helps me remember. So they are program, price, pace, and probability. So program, price, pace, and probability. And what he said is essentially adult students, when they make it to your website, they have four questions. It's, uh, do you have my program? How much does it cost? How fast can I finish? And then can I or should mm. I do it? And so program was really, you know, he said he was a big believer in don't market program specific, um, market the program portfolio. Mm. Uh, that like, you know, for the most part, Target doesn't market products, right? You just in your head know what Target has and you choose to go to Target or not. And so, you know, a lot of folks have been successful in doing portfolio strategies. It's very expensive to do program specific. And so we still did some, but he pushed us towards like, no, just make people think that no matter what we have the program for them and let them come to the website and the website's job is to help figure out if that's true and to match them with the right fit program then once they get to that program page it's really about a pace and price um you know pace is one that a lot of folks leave off which is speed to completion 
it's hard to calculate because it's not just the length of the program, it's the length of the program minus the credits you're able to transfer mm. in. Uh, and so that will help you figure out, well, can I finish this in six months or 12 months or two years? And folks are very much focused on that finish line and, and like, how can I finish? On the price side, you know, we talked a lot about this reality of, you know, okay, how do we uh, not just talk about credit? One of the biggest mistakes in higher ed is people talk about mm -hmm. cost per credit, which is a meaningless uh, term to most students. And what they really want is a cost per course. What they really want is a cost per program. And so we can do that math for them and tell them that. Uh, and then the final one was probability. Um, and that was really a, a can I or should I do it moment. And so people are kind of at this crossroads they're on the website, they're thinking about it. They don't want to give you information. They don't want to apply because they know as soon as they do, you're going to hound them. And they're not really sure they want to do this yet. Uh, and so folks like to sort of sit on the fence and think about things, especially large purchase decisions. This is the second largest purchase decision of someone's life outside of buying a house. And if someone is, is currently a renter, this is going to be the most expensive thing they've ever done. So understandably, they take time to evaluate. And so uh, that final one was the lesson he taught me the most, which is like, that's what creative does. Mm. Creative can really have a conversation about probability. It can leave people with a feeling and a sense that this institution gets me, this offering fits my lifestyle, and I feel more confident with you than with someone else. And that was really the task he gave us with creative, was how do you convey um, that, that they have a higher chance of probability here and not just with facts, but with feelings and get people to connect and get over the hump. So program, price, pace, and probability were the four Ps that he really uh, pushed. And that's been a structure I've carried with me ever since. And it's been kind of a part of all the work I've done uh, over the course of my And that's career. clearly worked for th Southern New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of very, very smart people at Southern New Hampshire University, a lot of people smarter than me, but they, during my time there, we grew from 7,000 to 70,000 students. And today they're over 165,000 students. And I think they'll do over a you know, billion dollars in tuition revenue this year. And so extraordinary organization, um, moved early when the window was open uh, and operational acumen, you know, out the wazoo, just unbelievably sharp folks from an ops perspective. And so, uh, but it did work. And I think, you know, um, I, I, my job was the brand creative. So I did the TV commercials. I did 35 commercials while I was there. and uh, Played only a small role, um, but certainly got a chance to, to hit on some of those points and hopefully make a difference. So uh, my experience has been that a lot of institutions like, oh, we'll spin up online programs, but we're going to approach the marketing in a very traditional way. And it's always seemed like institutions want to bury that tuition information. Um, they want to, everything's buried. Like it's your, your website is like, it shouldn't be a scavenger hunt to find out what a, what your tuition is going to cost. It shouldn't be a scavenger hunt to find out what programs you have. And yet that seems to be the case. Why are universities doing that? Why are, why are we not more savvy about this? That's a great question. Um, so my, my subjective thought would be that I think historically institutions that are primarily traditional have had marketing departments that are primarily service units. And so they are providing marketing at the behest of those that are not marketers and traditional academic administration. And so, um, you know, an academic administrator or maybe a program chair, uh, they might be focused on like how, like a, how can I fit all the program information possible on the web page? Because I want someone to have all the information possible. Uh, and as a marketer, we might tell them, you know, actually, if you give the less information, it will give them a reason to contact you. And then once they contact you, you can actually have the conversation. So we do want to deliver. Like, I, I've never met with an academic where I didn't share the desire to convey the information that they wanted. The only difference that we ever had was when we wanted to convey it. And my belief is always that, like, there's a concept called messaging hierarchy, which is that, like, you know, what the student wants and needs at the point of 
pre-awareness to awareness to inquiry to app start to absolute that changes and like the conversation we have with them needs to evolve and so i want to talk about all the specifics with them um, but if you put that on a website and you put that someone's going to have to take three math classes uh, what's going to happen is they're going to remember the time math was mm. really hard either in high school or perhaps even in college when they started that program and didn't finish you know math is one of the primary drivers of students that actually drop out for an academic reason and so you're putting them in a situation english is the other for writing where like you can overwhelm them and, and yet if you waited and, and they inquired then you can have this conversation of like well did you know that we actually have 24 7 math tutoring did you know that we have a writing center you don't have to nail this essay first time we're here we have resources for you today that maybe didn't exist when you tried before but we can't have that conversation on the website and and, and predict every person's area of concern but an enrollment representative on the phone absolutely can that's their entire job is to coach through that conversation and try to figure out if there's a right fit there and so um you know Lean websites are, are far more functional. The homepage's only job of the homepage is to get people to a program. Uh, if I could wave one wand in higher ed, I would do away with every hero video that I've ever seen ever that loads the site slow, that doesn't do anything for anybody. Um, and we're not quite there yet, but I will say the institutions that are embracing that are seeing a significant uptick. I mean, like, you know, it, it is not hard for us at Canahoma to increase our partners' conversion rates easily double digits on the homepage, sometimes triple digits, uh, in the span of like 90 to 100 days, uh, just by applying uh, a lens where we put the prospective student first and we say, we're here to address every one of their questions and concerns, but not on the website. We're here to address the right amount of concerns, to connect them to the rep, to have the right amount of concerns addressed there, and let's let this conversation evolve uh, rather than overwhelming somebody. Um, you know, there's a reason why at the car lot, they let you drive the car before they make you sit down with finance and read through right. everything, right? Like, let's build an emotional connection. Let's see ourselves uh, being successful and having this experience. And then let's talk about the nitty gritty. Like, we're not here to trick anybody to go back to school in a program that's not right for them. Um, but the reality is when our, when our obstacle is inertia, there's a lot of folks that just need the right support and the right encouragement. Uh, and one of those tools can actually be a website that says less, not less. Oh, I love that. I love that. Do you remember back in the olden days when I think it was Duke just had a search on their homepage? That was their homepage. It was just a search. I kind of yeah. love that. It's, it's a big move. There's also one where someone like was jokingly redesigning college pages as if they were Craigslist. <laughs> and I was like, that's so great. Like, that's, that's what they should be. I mean, it's just that. Because well, even then, I'll say like... A, not enough folks are redesigning their websites with performance as the primary motivator. Like this, there's, there's so many examples where I see institutions like spend lots of time and money and launch a website, and then it like statistically performs worse. Like it loads slower, it has more issues. They load it up with all sorts of JavaScript. Like they're they're doing all sorts of crazy things, and they're doing it because they're trying to like subjectively appease an internal editorial lens that's totally disconnected from the realities of the market. Uh, and uh, you know, unless you're the top. 1% of institutions that have a brand that can carry that kind of a conversation. You know, the rest of the folks, especially really everyone in the non-traditional space by and large, needs to think a little bit more like consumers and reduce friction and make things easier. Uh, school should be hard, uh, but going back to school should be easy. Uh, and everything that's outside of the classroom should be as easy as possible. And for some reason along the way, I think we took the, the idea of rigor and thought we'd <laughs> apply it to the entire process. And that was definitely a mistake. Well, and, and uh, you know, I've mentioned earlier in this conversation the equity and access and all of that. The harder you make it, the more that people who are first generation or you know, don't have a background in this, they're going to fall off. They're going to fall through all those 100%. cracks. I see those friction points as the cracks that people fall through. 
A hundred percent. And I think that not enough folks look at that. And I think for institutions moving into the non-traditional space, it's really important to like self-reflect on like missionally how that connects. Um, you know, even during my time at Southern New Hampshire, the organization, I can't stress how great that experience was, there were still some rubs with campus about the growth of online. Uh, and I remember going all the way back to the history books and saying, hold on, like we were founded in 1932 on the second story of a fruit stand. <laughs> and there's stories of students carrying handicapped students up the stairs to make sure they could make it to class. Uh, Southern New Hampshire was the first institution in the country to offer payment plans. You could pay by cash by week. And like along the way, it became a traditional campus institution. Uh, but these, but really, when you look back on it, like this was a very different role. And you know, we have a partner at Canahoma now that's uh, really strong in the healthcare space and has a it's a faith based uh, institution. And we had a lot of conversations about, well, let's go back to your founding. Let's really talk about you know what it is that we were being tasked to do. Not in every case, but by and large, you know, the founding of these institutions was not to just provide traditional residential campus experiences to 18 to 22 year olds. It was to address to address broader uh, and more significant societal needs that included 18 to 22 year olds, but not exclusively. Uh, and you know, the more we look back on it, the more I think we realize that um, you know something happened where we all started to worry about how elite we were and rankings, and and ex and we were exclusive, and we were you know, measuring success based on who we denied, not based on who we educated. Uh, and the non-traditional side of this industry is shaking that off, and I think it's so welcomed and so awesome. Uh, but it still lingers, you know, every time U.S. News puts out a new report, uh, it still hangs there. But there's a lot of great institutions that are doing meaningful work, I think, to, to change that and evolve and, and grow beyond it. I have a, a friend and colleague who is spending, I think she said, $2 million a year toward getting U.S. News and World Report rankings up. And I just think about $2 million, $2 million a year and the number of students that that could help with scholarships or the amount that you could be spending on support services or all of that just to move up in the rankings. That is, that is it. Yep. And it's just so silly. It, it is. And, and, and the sad part is that I don't, I've never really fully understood the, like the motivation behind it. Um, I'd like to think it's a marketing one, but I, as a marketer who has marketed us news, there's only been a few rare cases where we found a ranking that really mattered. Um, and made any semblance of a difference, you know, you know, top one, number one value, sure, okay, like you can tout that. Uh, UCLA, literally number one, okay, <laughs> sure, you can tout that. But for everybody else who's like, we're number 17, regional <laughs> west, it's like literally no one cares and all you're telling people is that there's 16 schools better <laughs> right. than you. Um, and so if we're not doing it for marketing, like are we just doing it, you know, and unfortunately I think it's, it's an internal thing, whether it's board pressure or internal academic aspiration and the desire to, to conflate our own success, to make our own moves in the industry, whatever it is, I'm just so inspired by all the institutions that are taking hard stances against this movement. And um, I'm not opposed to rankings. I'm just opposed to the methodology. Yeah. And you know, if we can do a better job of measuring outputs, not inputs, I'm actually fine with that. And the college scorecards attempted to do that, and there's a lot of flaws in it, but at least it was an attempt to move in that direction. And um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with helping, uh, you know, helping consumers make connections and comparisons. Uh, but if the idea is that we're going to educate less people so we rank higher, uh, that's just not that's not a great feeling. And I, I don't know, can't imagine uh, being a part of something. No, like that. And, and trying to get sort of false ad apps so that you can deny more students so that that can improve your numbers. Like what in the world? Oh, that's so real. Yeah. That is so real. And, and, and like 
it's just yeah. There's a lot of games that people play, uh, pushing early, accepting sooner to apply pressure to students, making them think they have to do uh, early to get in uh, and swinging. There's just a lot of, a lot of gamesmanship and uh, you know the question would be what if you could educate more? And I'll say again, uh, you know, I've been part of institutions that have that have served 500 students online and literally you know when I left, there's 77,000. Um, I'm most proud of the breadth of impact, and so it's pretty cool when it's like you know, the more successful we are, the more students come. Um, not just uh, the more successful we are, the, the, you know, the number of students is fixed. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of open admission institutions where it's variable and the better we are as marketers, the more we enroll and the more we're reaching students that otherwise would go nowhere or would go to a competitor where they may be underserved. That's, that's definitely the side of the space that, that um, gins me up a little bit. Yeah, more. I'm super passionate about access and affordability and making sure that we're serving students who maybe wouldn't have had a chance at a higher education or they're looking for an opportunity to change not just the trajectory of their life but the trajectory of their family and their communities it's just such an important part of being a citizen to have a good education just yeah. even beyond the workforce benefits and the benefits to you personally having an educated citizenry is just so so important and that means everybody and whether that's higher education in the sense of a traditional college experience or, you know, the, the programs that you were mentioning that are, you know, boot camps or whether that's going to school to become a welder or a forklift driver, but having some sort of opportunity to enrich your life through learning, I think is important. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, what just inspired me, I would say, I've never said this out loud, so I'll say it here. Uh, I would love to see more of our peers that we know in this industry leave traditional institutions for non-traditional ones, uh, or at least leave a traditional institution for one that's blended across the two. Um, I just think we have such a, a wealth of talent in our space, and unfortunately, a lot of it is leaving, which is a whole separate conversation. And I just think a lot of those folks would be you know, deeply challenged and fulfilled uh, moving into a non-traditional space that's more performance and data-driven. Uh, like this is a hard space to market in. Like every day I get up and it's like, wow, like we're, we are like, we are like after it. And it's so fun and it's so challenging and it's just very different than my experiences at more traditional elite institutions. Uh, and I'm sure that those experiences exist in some of those. Uh, but for folks that are maybe thinking about uh, moving to, to newer pastures, I would just say non-traditional pastures are waiting. And those institutions are great and your, your talents could really be applied in, in a way to make a meaningful Yeah, impact. absolutely. I have historically worked at access institutions and then briefly was at um, a school that considered itself elite. And it was sort of at like, I would describe it as kind of like the lower edge of the elite side of things, like kind of just scrambling to keep grabbing that eliteness. And it just wasn't for me. Like that that feeling of um, we're doing this because we want other people to view us as great was just it just wasn't a good feeling it didn't feel like it was about the students and the mission didn't really align with who I was personally um and so I had a bunch of people say why why would you leave what you had to go to kind of a, a regional campus I mean it's large and it has a a growing um number of programs and it's like because they have this entrepreneurial spirit where they're looking at what students want and need and are providing that instead of like oh no you might want this but we know better than you and we're going to give you what we think you need which is something that we have been doing for 200 years in the exact same way yeah completely well i'll, I'll say i mean i'm a, I'm a 
color from the side of the line that I'm on, but when I saw where you went, I was geeked out. I'm very familiar, have followed for a long time, and just the breadth of impact is so cool. Um, I mean, the ability, you, you know, uh, percentages stay the same, um, but the numbers get larger, meaning like, you know, any institution that says, oh, we, we grew 5% year over year, uh, that's meaningful. One of our partners, we've grown 30% year over year. Um, but when you when you grow yeah, in a down market, which is great, uh, when you grow 30% in a down market, you know, when you're talking about, you know, thousands of students and hundreds of students, it's pretty mm -hmm. cool to step back and think, you know, we didn't beat our app goal and get an extra 50 students. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's wonderful. Uh, but, you know, SNU got me that taste of like, it's fun to think, no, we're impacting thousands of lives. And so like the scale that you get to play at um, and that we get to play with large students is just really fun and adds a whole other level of complexity too because the types of marketing that you can do just totally open up and change uh, and so it's just a I don't know. I think it's a fun side of the space to be in. I'm like really excited yeah. for you. I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to be at a place that sort of jives with my my values and um, I, I was if you haven't yet listened to the episode um, where I interviewed Alan Stein that was life-changing. I was sitting and he was talking about how Burnout doesn't come from being overworked. Burnout comes with when your values are in conflict with the values of your leadership or your organization. And I had this moment of, oh my God, that's why I'm burned out. Mm. And two weeks later, the president of Old Dominion called me and said, hey, would you like to come out here and interview? And it was like, yeah, I was totally primed for it because of that conversation. Yeah. I, I used to sleep at the office at Southern New Hampshire. It was really like crazy. I, I'm I'm down to work, but you're right. It's it's probably more the values thing, which is that like I don't want to trade family time for work mm -hmm. time. Um, I will work as hard as I possibly can within the windows that I have, and I really don't love that I have sacrificed some of those windows in order to get things done. Um, and so I gotta reflect on that. That's kind of deep. That might um, help me answer a little bit on even what I'm going through, which is like. I can push through and keep working hard. I like to work hard. I like to play hard. Um, but I, maybe I'm not loving some of the trade-offs that I've made occasionally. See, confessions sense. of a higher ed CMO, changing lives. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. That's like really good. Yeah. This, is, good. this has been such an awesome conversation, Seth. You are awesome to follow on Twitter, and I love your newsletter. Every time I read it, I'm like, that is awesome. Oh, thank that you. is awesome. So you should, everybody listening should sign up for it. But where can people find you? Oh, yeah, so, uh, I'm Seth O'Dell at pretty much everything. So Seth O'Dell on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, yeah, I have a newsletter, which if you go to canahoma.com, you can get it's on the bottom of the, of the homepage. Uh, the newsletter is like my fun, favorite thing. I've loved writing it. I'm like, I just wish I had more time to write more consistently. I really enjoy it. Twitter is my hot takes and like anybody can send me requests on LinkedIn. Uh, I love uh, this industry and this space. I feel like so grateful for everybody I've met. And so I am never one to shy away from a new connection or a new friendship. So like folks can track me down at any of those, uh, canahoma.com or Seth O'Dell, wherever, wherever they social, I will probably. And I strongly there. recommend uh, following him everywhere and signing up for those newsletters. I think I need to sign up on my ODU email now, but they're, <laughs> I love how they're just really digestible. They're not big giant blocks of text. They're just you can grab, I think you use bold to kind of guide people through the, yeah. the content. You can tell that you're a, a really good content marketer. Ah, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, try to, everyone's so busy. So I try to, my argument is always that every newsletter should be able to be read in three minutes or less. So it's like just enough time to like have a sip of coffee and think about something and then, then we're out the door. Yeah, again, it's you know, awesome. So. It's great stuff. Well, thank you, Seth, for listeners. You can always uh, join in the conversation about this episode using the hashtag 
Higher Ed CMO on both LinkedIn and on Twitter. You can find me on, on both spaces on Twitter. I am Jamie Hunt IMC. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C. And on LinkedIn, I'm Jamie Hunt. I'm always eager to chat. You can pick my brain. Um, just like Seth, I really like connecting with people. So please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from listeners. And um, in the meantime, let's go out there and bust some silos. Hey y'all, Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO with Jamie Hunt. If you liked this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing learning community of 4,000 members and we'd love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.